Hey guys, Sklar Brothers here from View from the Cheap Seats podcast. And this week we have one of the best sports writers in the game. And he's got a great podcast as well. Jonah Carey joins us on the podcast. Did you have fun on View from the Cheap Seats, Jonah? I had the most fun and my commute was about 14 steps down to my living room. We did it in your living room. We're in Denver. It's a little road. uh, I'm going to call it a road victory for us all. We all There's no one I want to talk to more than who right now during these baseball playoffs than than Jonah Jonah Carey. Carey. So join us on this episode because we take the deepest dive. Let me just say there is a three a <laughs> Mordecai three, three finger, finger brown reference. There you go. That's and by there. the way, Gar Ryness is not here. I'm kissing him. I'm, I'm giving love. a shout out now. I feel like he always needs to be at least in spirit. When we love talk. to the batting stance yes. guy. Guys, finding quality denim jeans is tough, and to find a good pair without breaking the bank is just uh, almost impossible. But at Distilled, spelled D S T L D. You get, like, brand top quality jeans at a price that won't break your bank. And I know I said break the bank, but I like saying break the bank. And I'll say it again. Break the bank. But just go to distilled.com, D-S-T-L-D.com right now and use the promo code FERAL and check out and get a 20% discount on your first pair. And these are great jeans. I love them. I wear them all the time. Heck, I sleep in them. Distilled jeans. They're the best jean you're ever going to wear. In fact, I shower in them. Distilled jeans. D-S-T-L-D. They're good quality, super duper denim. And, you know, it's not going to cost you like $200 or $100. Go to distilled.com. D-S-T-L-D.com. Do it. Get some jeans. Look cool. with Matt Dwyer. I am Matt Dwyer. And people have heard me say that phrase 52 times in the last year because I've been doing this show one year. This is my one year anniversary show. So indulge me for a moment while I thank some people. Uh, and I really first and foremost have to thank Dustin Marsh- Marshall. I couldn't say his name. Way to thank somebody publicly, Dwyer, by bungling up the name of Dustin Marshall. Well, because his email, he says Dustin Martian. It gets confusing. I, Anyway, um, a year ago, I frankly, I felt a little uh, lost. I didn't know what the hell I was doing with my life. I kind of was like, well, what's next? And I I did Duncan Trussell's podcast, and he's like, Dwyer, you got you to gotta do another podcast. He's like, you need to get back in there. This You're really good at uh, this talking stuff. So he put me in touch with Dustin and Dustin dug the idea for my show, and here we are, a year later. But I just, I can't thank him enough for the hard work. I mean, he edits these, he produces these, he puts, he deals with the website, he deals with my insanity, and he has done it all for, you know, a portion of the the donations people have given to us. So, you know, he's a really, Dustin is doing a very thankless job and a one that doesn't pay very well <laughs> so so if that's not incentive for you to donate to my show I don't, I don't know what is but um it's really been great becoming friends with dustin and working with him and having a venue for not just my dumb voice but the more intelligent articulate people that i have been able to interview and I would like to thank, uh, just a real quick, I'd like to thank my girlfriend, Kelly Rose, who makes my life much better, way better, uh, Matt Bronger, Duncan Trussell, Margaret Kramer, Wayne Kramer's wife, who has helped me get some incredible guests, Danielle Burnaby and her sister, Michelle Burnaby, who have helped me get some of my most interesting guests, like Pete O'Neill, the the Black Panther, who... Uh, who is a very... I've been very fortunate to talk to a lot of really inspiring people who've who've helped me realize stop being a selfish big fat baby and go out and do some things in the world besides uh, worry about showbiz. Because if you worry about showbiz, I'm a fine example of it, you just end up really fucking miserable. And... I've just, I've been, this, my show, you know, if you've listened to all 52 episodes, you realize I'm probably a little crazy, because, <laughs> because, uh, I'm crazy. Um, 
but you know, you, you, I'm open about my life. You get to see my stupid phases and whims and points of view. Though I, you know, points of view stays pretty. But you know, I get, uh, look, I'm I'm a little crazy. Uh, I'd also like to thank my dog. Speaking of crazy, because you know we've heard him bark on almost every episode, and that's uh, so he's like you know he's a he's a he's a he's a staple on my show, Charlie, my dog. Um, I. I would also like to thank Josh Caldwell, who does the uh, theme music there with his band Les Blanks. It was very nice of him to give me that song. He's a pretty awesome guy, and he's also been a very inspiring person to me. Uh, We have some great conversations. He's going to be a guest on the show very soon. And my guest today is Will Potter. He, I had him on. He was one of my early guests, and he was one of the inspiring people that made me realize, you know, you can do more. And uh, we have a great, I have a great conversation with him very shortly. I'm trying to think if there's anybody else I need to thank. And I'm sure, I I will like to, you know, I do, I want to thank uh, the many people who have donated over the years or have helped promote my show. Um, There's, there's been, I've been very fortunate to have a lot of friends who are very supportive and uh, I'm a guy who has a lot of good friends. I can say that. I'm a fortunate individual in the friend department um i don't know if i'm leaving anybody out i apologize i love all my friends and i'm very loving towards you listeners because you've you've uh made me feel as if i have a wheat had a purpose in life which let's be frank though it's all a flashing moment that'll be gone before we know it and soon we'll be forgotten so it's really not that important is it But in this present moment, which is all I know, I am highly thankful to be doing this fucking show. And with that, further ado, let's talk to author of uh, a great book, Green is the New Red. That's also his website. He's an incredible guy, Will Potter. There seems to be more awareness of the ag, ag, ag I couldn't say it there. That, that was really embarrassing. I almost said Aflac. <laughs> <laughs> Does it seem like there's more awareness of the ag gag bills, or is that just because I follow you on all your various uh, social sites? Well, I'm sure I probably give a skewed impression because I focus so much time on this stuff. But I think across the board, there is a huge increase in awareness. I mean, every state where these bills have been introduced, I think it's led to a lot of media attention. But, you know, as this heats up, like in Tennessee, for example, I mean, it's just been overwhelming the amount of media coverage and discussion. I think it's really extended outside of, you know, kind of activist circles or civil liberties in animal and environmental circles to more of a mainstream audience. Yeah, it seems like when I first started talking to you about a year ago, which was it was just about a year, it it seemed like a very uh, uh, it seemed like a very limited amount of press it was getting, and, and like now I've seen you on, you've been on um, Democracy Now, and it seems like a very mainstream. Uh, story. Yeah, it, it definitely feels that way. And I think, you know, and, and people are really interested in making those connections, um, you know, regardless, I think, of where people are, regardless of whether or not they're vegetarian or environmentalists or whatever. I mean, I think it's really telling to see unions on the same page as the ACLU on the same page as, you know, the Humane Society and the Sierra Club um, and whistleblower groups. I mean, I think that really is a, a reflection of where we're at right now. And I don't remember a time when those people have all in the, been in the same room together and been, you know, really working on the same things. So I think that's like, it's just a huge development. Yeah, you don't really think of union organizers uh, concerned about their, their meat products. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's been, I I think uh, some activists, you know, pay lip service to this. They'll at least acknowledge that working in these places is really the most, one of the most dangerous industries in the country and how horrific it is for the employees and things they're asked to do and, you know, 
union bust and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, seeing that play out in, in real life is something else and seeing actually people working on this issue together. Yeah, I think people still are of the mentality of like, well, they list our food, the ingredients on a box, and we fixed the meat packing industry with, you know, Upton Sinclair. I think people still, and the FDA, like, I think people are like, so it's okay, right? And I don't think they realize that they sort of, the companies really pushed a lot of that stuff back to the almost two Upton Sinclair times, how unsafe that work environment is. Oh, absolutely. And I think that it's, you know, the supporters of these ag act bills have really kept the focus on undercover investigators. But the implication for workers really stretches across industries, too. I mean, the North Carolina bill uh, that's still still alive is so broad that it includes all industries. I mean, it's called the Commerce Protection Act, and it doesn't even mention agriculture or factory farms. I mean, it includes every industry. So, I mean, when we're talking about people that are working in, you know, fracking operations or uh, the timber industry, mining, um, you know, automobile plants, anything, and any abuses against workers or the environment, or the environment would really be singled out with that type of legislation. Yeah, I can't imagine working around fracking is the healthiest thing for a human being. Because it's just like, it's like, I mean, it's like a hundred chemicals, isn't it? Is it a hundred or is it 200 chemicals that they plow into the ground? And a lot of that is openly exposed. I just, I can't imagine these people. Well, and also, you know, I think in all of these industries, the power of that video and photographic evidence is really a game changer in terms of public opinion. I mean, you know, when we see photos of 2,000-year-old forests that are reduced, reduced to mulch, you know, and nothing there. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty damning indictment of the industry. It just hits pretty viscerally. I think with the fracking, you know, with, uh, with Fox's uh, film, Gasland, when you can see the water uh, so contaminated, you can, it sparks and you can light it on fire sometimes. I mean, I think that's really a, can convey these issues much more effectively than any uh, written account. Yeah, that uh, Gasland documentary, uh, I, I, I kind of wept <laughs> at the end of that. I don't, I don't know. That makes me sound like a real. I'm, I'm not a strong guy anyway, so I, I weep all the time. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, it's, it's your upsetting. image is shattered as, as the macho guy that he. <laughs> yeah, real. I know. I come off as a real tough guy. <laughs> Um, yeah. No, I mean, I, I, it's just overwhelming to, and to see, I don't know, it's, it's just like this feeling of hopelessness, too, of the people that are in these communities that you don't have, or at least you don't feel like there's any option, there's no recourse, and I think that's really, the industry wants it that way, and there's no accident uh, or no coincidence why certain communities are chosen for these industries, because they don't have the means to really fight back. Yeah, it it's. It, do you feel like there is a hopelessness, or do you just is that like a thing that overcomes you once? Because I, sometimes I'm like, what's the fucking like? I don't know. Maybe I should just do a show where I, I talk about celebrities like everybody else. <laughs> it's like because it's like so. De- it's so depressing sometimes. Oh, totally. I mean, and now I mean, I'm trying to to get back to doing this work full-time and so you know you're, i'm constantly thinking about money and paying the bills and then you just see shit on the internet that makes you want to punch yourself in the face like <laughs> like like articles about people you know youtube youtube famous making millions with billions of followers and they're just doing just the goofiest crap and you know it's hard not to be disheartened about that stuff but i think there is um i mean there are a lot of people that won't more than that. I don't think we acknowledge that enough. Like, I think in a cult, this culture, we have a tendency when we feel that kind of hopelessness, we want to push it away as fast as possible. Um, and certainly that's what I try to do as well, to just to move through it and to keep going. But I think those feelings are shared by a lot of people and, you know, we don't really talk about them. Yeah, I've I've noticed when, like, I post certain things on Facebook, uh, if it's something really innocuous and stupid, it gets a, 
everyone's like, hey, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, if it's something about like, Obama is doing this, it's like, nothing. It's like, no one wants to hear it. And it's... Well, and I think, yeah, I think there's like a, a shell shock aspect of it too. It's that, it's really telling to me that, you know, I do a lot of public speaking at universities and stuff like that. And I never meet people that are shocked by this stuff. I mean, I may be shocked by like specific examples or different stories I have and things like that. But the, the bigger problem, it's not a surprise to anybody. <laughs> you know, nobody is shocked like, wow, you mean corporations are doing anything they can to silence their opposition to keep us in the dark and they're rewriting our laws? Like, no one has said that ever, ever in 10 years. And I think that says a lot about where we are. Like, people know this stuff is going on, and I think a lot of people just don't want to engage with it or don't want to to be reminded of it constantly. I, I don't know. Yeah, because it seems, I don't, I've been trying to figure that out. It's like, it seems like people should be ragingly pissed off and doing more, I guess. And I mean, it is hard to, when you're trying to pay your bills and all that, but it's just, it's, it's just really confusing to me because it's like, every, I know a great number of people who've been affected by, you know, the banks and the, all, all the, the economy. And, and it, it's just astounding to me that it, it, if there's like a subtle sort of like, oh, we're, we are defeated or, or I, don't, I don't know. I, I can't figure it out. Well, and I think uh, I've been thinking about that a lot in terms of these ad gag bills, too. And I think what they hit on in a unique way is it, it, it's something really concrete. I mean, what the, these corporations are doing is very concrete and trying to shut down these videos. The videos themselves are tangible, like they're showing you know, things that directly outrage people. And then the consequence of that is concrete also. I mean, whether or not people should have the right to know where their food is coming from. I mean, that, that's something we do every couple of days, every week, whatever you go to the store and you're making these choices. So I think that's something that is engaging people in a different way. Like it seems like with all the process with the banks, even though people are feeling that immediately, there's been less of a, I don't know, less of a tangible connection to it. I think people still kind of regard the banks and capitalism and just entire economic systems as some things that are just there that can't really be questioned. Um, and hopefully that's changing too. I, I think it is, but there is something I noticed like a few months ago. Is like you can't say – a lot of people can't say anything – anti-capitalism because it's so ingrained in our psyche now of like that's the american way that you almost kind of have to apologize where you're like i'm not against capitalism but like i heard that a lot <laughs> and it's like no it's okay to be against capitalism i mean if it's if it's you know like there's you know dr Bronner's soap those guys are capitalists but they're very responsible and environmentally conscious and pretty it's that's a pretty great company and then there's, you know, these fracking pricks who just, you know, rape the land and the people around it. It's like... Well, I don't know if you feel this way, but I mean, in a lot of social settings, I feel like you can't even say the word. Like, you can't even say the C word, you know, because it it's like this, this signal, like this flag that just, literally a red flag that just shoots up that's, oh my God, this guy is he's the radical, like he's the lefty, he's the whatever, um, just by like identifying something as what it is, like that's the system we live in. But to use the word capitalism, it automatically makes people, um, I think, get into this mindset of, you know, what perspective you're coming from. And I think that's really, <laughs> I think that says a lot too. Like we can even talk honestly about the world in which we live in. I feel like, in the future, people will point to America as an example of how capitalism did not work. <laughs> it's like, cause I feel like we're really going down the shitter, and I, th I think there's that arrogance about a lot of um, uh, the U.S. citizens where they're like, like we're indestructible. It's almost like a cocky twenty-two-year-old <laughs> who who doesn't realize oh, totally. he's going to be forty someday and his knees hurt. 
<laughs> yeah, I think that the news are starting to give out too. I, I really think that's, you know, what we're seeing right now. And especially like all the stuff that I work on, this kind of backlash from these industries, I think that's only going to get worse. And it, it's just a reflection of, um, you know, that 22 year old coming into his own really. Yeah. Is it, is it the FBI who's actually sort of behind a lot of these or like, uh, by the blah, the word isn't coming. Sort of, they're not behind the ag gag bills, but they are enforcing it. Correct? I, I I wouldn't say that. I mean, the the, the bigger picture of everything going on, the FBI has really been instrumental in that. I mean, in elevating all of this stuff to the level of a top terrorism threat. I mean, things I've written about include, um, you know, the FBI actually having files which revealed that they've considered terrorism prosecution for undercover investigators. I mean, the same types of things that are being targeted in these ag-gag bills. But I mean, we haven't come to the point um, that there have been prosecutions under federal terrorism legislation for these investigations. And, you know, it's unclear the level of involvement of the FBI at the state level. But it's, it's clearly there, and I think it has to be situated in that that context of corporations working closely with politicians to introduce these bills and to draft the laws for them and the FBI, you know, working at the, the national level across the country, um, investigating these activists as terrorism threats. Yeah. It's like, uh, the, I recently watched that documentary on, uh, Judy Berry. Is it Judy or Jody Berry? The Judy. Judy. Yeah. And how they, somebody pipe bombs her car and they turn it around and it kind of appears like it's the FBI. Turn, like, And then they're like, that was her bomb. And it's like, there was, that's crazy. <laughs> it's like, but, but it, yeah, I, mean, I mean, it seems like they've been doing that sort of thing. For, like, I think we thought Cointelpro ended and it's like, I mean, that granted that was like decades ago, but it's still, that's still happening quite a lot. And I think that's shocking to a lot of people that one that COINTELPRO even existed. I think, I, you know, I, I, I'm surprised how many people even engaged in political activism aren't aware of the, the true scope of what happened during that program. I mean, there were uh, assassination attempts, there were uh, misinformation, spreading rumors, disruption, lies. I mean, all that stuff took place. Um, these kind of black ops tactics. And I think what we're seeing now, um, it's a mistake to, to view that all as part of the national history. I think these tactics are really evolving. And in some ways, they've become much more transparent. I mean, the, these ag-gag bills, they're not, the corporations and, and industry behind this are not trying to hide what they're doing um, in terms of their tactics. I mean, they overtly want to silence these groups. And so it's really a shift in a lot of ways from kind of operating behind the scenes and this kind of cloak and dagger maneuvers, which undoubtedly still take place, and also these really overt in front of your in front of your face tactics of trying to shut these movements down. Would you, would you say that's a bit of what was going on with uh, Daniel McDowell? Uh, Mc, Mc, I'm totally flaking on him. Oh, McGowan. McGowan. God damn it! My brain is a little off today. Forgive me. <laughs> couldn't find it in my notes but it's because uh, i mean he wrote and he went to prison then he they put him in a special prison for terrorists like i guess for those who don't know he was an environmental activist said a few committed arson was charged as a terrorist correct and then right he was put in a special prison in illinois for like he was in jail with guys who actually blow shit up terrorists <laughs> And then well, he was in a yeah he was in a communications management unit, which according to the government is uh, a specialized prison unit for people with quote inspirational significance, and that's really why McGowan was was housed there for the majority of his prison time. Um, there's two of these places in Marion, Illinois, and in Terre Haute, Indiana. And so after McGowan got out, and he was released to a halfway house in Brooklyn, and you know, in in every way, he's been really the model um, prisoner in that regard. I mean, he's 
got immediately got a job in the long, I mean, almost a year before he was released, I was communicating with him and I know people were around the country trying to help find him a job. Um, I mean, this is how far in advance he was planning everything. He had a job immediately when he got out of the law firm, he was paying everything on time. He was, uh, had no violations, no communications violations, nothing. And he wrote about his experiences in this secretive prison uh, for the Huffington Post. And he wrote about some court documents that his attorneys obtained that showed a little bit of a, a better idea of why he was sent to these to prison units. And it was clearly a retaliation for his First Amendment activity of him being a, a leader, of having that inspirational significance. So a day after that, I was actually up in New York and we were supposed to meet for coffee. And I got an email from him the night before. I was like, hey, dude, we're not going to be able to do this. My work permit was denied. I don't know what's going on. The next day, I find out he was arrested and then sent back into custody. Um, and it was a retaliation for this blog post, according to the, to the Bureau of Prisons. Fortunately, he has a great legal team at the Center for Constitutional Rights. And they went to the BOP and said, hey, this law that you rearrested him under was found unconstitutional in 2007. Like, you can't do this. And so they said, okay, they released him, and then they made him sign something that he wouldn't do any more media. I mean, think about this. Like, the, the guy was retaliated against for his political views and sent to this political prison. He gets out, and then by writing about that retaliation, he's then retaliated against again and sent back to jail and made to sign some special waiver about not talking about his, uh, his prison term. I mean, it's just, it's kind of over the top in how this is all played out. Can he never talk about it or is it just while he's on probation? No, it's just for, for the remainder of his um, time in the halfway house and on probation. How is, how is his mental state? I mean, I don't, I don't know if I personally could endure that. <laughs> Though I am a macho. Well, and I think that says a lot about about Daniel. I mean, he, I mean, I can't speak for him, but I would definitely say he had an idea that something like that would be possible by writing about his experiences. I mean, after everything he and so many other people have been through, I think, you know, they would be shocked to not have something, <laughs> to not have a potential bad consequence or retaliation from the government. Um, so, I mean, to, to risk that, to get the word out, I think really says a lot about his character because it's such a, it's a traumatic, prison is a traumatic experience, but being released is also traumatic. And I think people don't often talk about that, that you're going from an environment that's just so rigidly structured with all of these rules that don't really apply anywhere else except prison and rules that, you know, you really can't break unless you know, you're going to put yourself in personal danger, uh, physical danger. And then to go from that to being in New York City, which, I mean, everyone around you seems to have absolutely no laws that they follow. <laughs> you can do, right? Like, can you think of a more jarring experience than to go from a terrorist prison unit than to Brooklyn? <laughs> like, you know, I mean, it just, it, it has to be traumatic. And then to be thrown back into jail and then pulled back out. Um, and it's not just the consequences of that on him, him, excuse me, but also about on his wife and his family who are dealing with this, um, with him and going through these experiences together. It's really heartbreaking, man. I mean, I've seen that documentary about him and it's like, he's, seems like a very, sweet individual it's like it's not like you know you don't think of the typical guy who would be tossed in jail you, you know he's he's not a thug or anything he's a he's a seems like a good human being well i think that's that's one thing that the reason all this terrorism rhetoric is used is because it really strips people of that identity of their personal identity and their personal character and also of any discussion about why people would do what they did. Um, not just in Daniel's case, but in, in so many others too. It's not that these activists 
woke up and, and became exposed to these issues and suddenly ran out wanted to you know burn SUVs or destroy logging equipment or something like that I mean it was really for everybody I've talked to and written about it's really a steady trajectory of trying to make things better trying to stop violence trying to stop the destruction of the the natural world and then every step of the way just getting met with increasing police violence backlash um ineffectiveness and and i think that kind of leads people in some senses down a certain path whether or not you agree with it i mean that's that's how people like daniel got there it's not because he was trying to you know he never hurt anybody. He had no intention of ever hurting anybody. It's because he wanted to try to make things better. Um, and I think that makes it even more more painful. Yeah, it's really strange when you watch something like the Gasland documentary. And, like, that, to me, is a, that's truly terrorism. It's like, that is just pure destruction and greed opposed to somebody trying to save the land. It's really perplexing how our government can see that fracking, support fracking, and the XL pipeline looks like it's going to happen. I think they started building that in Texas. Yeah. And it's just, it's just, it's, and then here's a guy who's trying to actually save it, save the environment so we can, I don't know, breathe and drink water. (laughs) It's like... Right. Right. I mean, I think that really cuts to the heart of what what this language is about, what concepts of terrorism are about. It's all about, you know, if if that destruction comes downhill, I mean, if it comes from people in power and corporations or nation states against people who don't have any power, um, then it's just business as usual. But when you kind of redirect that, that flow and you begin to challenge power structures, you challenge uh, authority or challenge corporate interests um, from positions of not really having anything except, you know, a, a handful of protesters or a monkey wrench or whatever. It's, it changes that dialogue completely. That's how it becomes terrorism. Um, everything else is just business as usual. Yeah. You made a good point in one of your articles, too, that by the FBI focusing on these environmentalists and that it's it actually spreads them thin to to actually fight or stop actual terrorism that could be more of a threat and that's a really interesting point well and it's something i first heard from a former fbi agent actually several when i was researching the book that were raising these kind of concerns that they didn't want to be doing this work and as I got more into it, actually in the last year, what was this, just a couple months ago, there was a big report that came out from West Point that was really the most exhaustive study that's ever been done on right-wing violence. And I think there's some problems with the study about how it classifies, in some ways, property destruction as violence. But even when you just single out the physical acts of, of physical violence against human beings by right-wing groups. They've increased astronomically over the last 30 years, and especially in the last five or 10. And I mean, when you really put that down compared to the increase in focus on environmentalists and animal rights activists, I think that should really raise some really troubling questions for everybody. Um, there's clearly a misplaced priority on these groups and when you focus all of your time and energy on nonviolent activists it's allowing violent groups to continue really undeterred yeah it's it's it makes you wonder like i mean they're not focusing on neo-nazi groups or the westboro memphis baptist church i i would assume right. as much as they are and, well and we see that because they you know what these recent sending uh, ricine and anthrax and there is you know murder of judges down in texas and uh and prosecutors i mean these things keep popping up all over the country it seems like every every week every two weeks there's a new uh, investigation like this and they're never labeled as terrorism and they're not investigated as such either yeah i there was just that just this week the fbi threw uh 
if I pronounce her first name correctly, Asada Shakur, who committed a crime 40 right. years ago. They put her on the like the number one, the top FBI wanted list. And it's like, why are you pursuing hey. some woman who's got to be 60 or 70 years old? Who's like, like, what is your ulterior motive of this? I mean, I think that really is the question. I mean, Asada Shakur, um, you know, her involvement in the Black Panther Party and the Black Liberation Army, if she had a, a whole string of charges thrown at her that really none of them stuck. I think the only one that did was a conspiracy charge. Um, and she fled. And she fled to Cuba claiming, um, you know, political asylum because she would be treated harshly because of her political views. And look what we're seeing. We're seeing exactly that. I mean, for, you know, decades later, to suddenly put her as the first woman on the most wanted terrorist list is just absolutely absurd. As, as right-wing terrorism continues to thrive, as people are continuing to attack um, minority groups because of their religious or ethnic uh, or sexual orientation, I think it just says a lot about the government's priorities. Yeah, I'm. I'm wondering what, with like Cuba, or I just I can't figure out like why are you going after this woman and is what with Cuba is is involved because I know we would love to put up a few McDonald's in Havana. I think that's. I mean, I think that's part of it. Um, but I mean, there really I don't think that there's been a, a new development in terms of relationships with Cuba that's really. Uh, would help explain this. I think it's more about just a reminder of of that fear of that you know you can't escape these labels when when you fight back when you resist the state or when you align yourselves with these uh, with radical social movements you'll be marked that way and there's no uh, going back and there's no going forward. And I think that's really the message. It's not so much about Asada Shakur. I think it's about sending a message to the people that sympathize with her, that pay attention to her her writings and her lectures and what she's doing, um, that have read her book and support, you know, her ideology. I think that's what really this is all about. Yeah, it's uh, hooray <laughs> for for. The... <laughs> and has. Has it seemed that this the grand jury resistors the have that has that situation cooled down a little bit? I know they released Matt Duran and Kadio, uh, but, but of course they could still be tried for contempt, which is pretty great that they can still be fucked with. But it doesn't seem like they're pulling people into grand juries as much, or is that am I misguided on that? Um, yes and no. So the situation in the Northwest seems to be stable and that, you know, everyone's out and I don't think there's a likelihood of them being indicted again for criminal contempt. Um, although, like you said, it's a possibility. There is a, another person now who's been subpoenaed before a grand jury in New York City um, for equally absurd uh, investigation claiming that he might have overheard someone at a bar talking about what they knew about someone else's involvement in the destruction of a, um, I believe it was a military recruitment center in Times Square. And so this is the nature of the grand jury subpoena. He'd already been subpoenaed before and refused to cooperate, and now he's been subpoenaed again. And it looks like jail time's going to be a definite possibility, and he's, he's of course, refusing to cooperate. So that might be... a that's an emerging situation out there in New York that I think is going to be escalating pretty quickly. Do you, what, do you know that fellow's name or person's name? Yeah, it's Jerry Coke. That's, uh, that's just because he may have overheard something in a bar, that is the most absurd thing I've ever heard. Well, and it really ties back to what um, really became apparent in the, the Mayday investigations, that it wasn't about what these people knew it was about um, this idea of social mapping and trying to just build little networks of who people are connected to and who they know. And if people are interested in that, I believe the website is jerryresists.net. 
and that has information about his case and how to support him. And there's some T-shirts that people made. Um, the next court date is coming up on May 16th. Um, I have some information up on my website as well, but it has a good you know, overview of this case. And if people want to donate or attend the courthouse hearing, all that information is there. Man, it's just, it's so, and it seems like our government is, I mean, with things like the NDAA Act, it's that, which I'm not sure exactly where that stands right now, because I know Chris Hedges and uh, Daniel Ellsberg and a couple others, like, sued the Obama administration for the NDAA Act, but does that, because some of the wording is a kind of anti-journal, you know, journalism, and helping squash people associate, you know, reporting on, uh, you know, like if if Hedges was saying he could have been in tr- get in trouble for writing an article about Al Qaeda and like interviewing Al Qaeda members, and that's that's pretty terrifying. Does that sort of thing make you nervous at all? Absolutely. You know, without a doubt, all of this. I mean, everything we've been talking about does. Um, <laughs> like the uh, you know the ag gag bills. I mean, it makes me nervous as you know. I haven't conducted undercover investigations of factory farms, but it's something I have definitely considered. Um, I've interviewed plenty of undercover investigators. I don't want to be forced to turn over my notes because, I mean, I, I would have no choice. I would go to jail before I do that. There's no doubt about that. Um, the National Defense Authorization Act is the same thing for all the concerns that Hedge has articulated. I mean, I'm really – the people I'm interviewing are um, – not Al-Qaeda, but they're being labeled as the FBI's number one domestic terrorist threat. And I don't take that very lightly. I mean, and, and with the grand jury situation, um, reporters have been subpoenaed to grand juries as well and been, you know, forced to either turn over their notes or uh, spend time in jail up to six months, 18 months. And I think all these things are, are direct attacks on the press in addition to on uh, social movements. Yeah, they're really doing everything they can to squash dissent in this country, and that that that's like a really big step in that direction. Well, and I think it's really a a fight for information. I think it's it's about dissent, but I think all of these tactics, the, the common thread is trying to control the flow of information. I mean, I would even extend it beyond this to look at WikiLeaks, um, the Jeremy Hammond case, um, you know, Anonymous, you know, which are a group of internet activists that have done things like expose corporate emails and shut down corporate websites, leak out thousands of documents. Um, all of this, I mean, I think the real common thread is trying to control that flow of information. And the irony, of course, is anything that exposes that corporate or information or information about people in power is under attack. But anything that um, is compelling us to turn over increasing amounts of information for Facebook or credit applications or, you know, internet browsing, CISPA, that's all just fair game. So we're not allowed to have any privacy um, or have any control of our information. And we're also not allowed to see any information about what corporations are actually doing. Boy, that's when you put it that way. It's even. It's just really. I just got depressed again. But I don't think. <laughs> I don't think people like see it that way. I think a lot of times when you, when you talk about this sort of activism, a lot of times people. I don't think they get it, or they, like a lot of times, environmental and animal rights activists are kind of. See, no, oh, these fucking hippies. Like, people get really right. judgmental of even like if you say like the word vegan strikes up a lot of like weird. Oh, absolutely. It's very strange. I think people have a very biased opinion of what vegan who vegans are. Oh, without a doubt. And I, I mean, even when I'm, I try to be aware of this, all these kind of biases when I'm doing interviews on, on mainstream media, just like what we're talking about using the word capitalism really just throws people off. I think even bring, using a word like vegan or uh, activist, even the word activist, I think 
it kind of shuts down conversations with people because it's become such a dirty word. I mean, even the, the idea of advocating about something you actually believe in is just shocking, I think, to a lot of people. And it's seen as something only unemployed and dreadlocked, you know, potheads are engaged in. And, you know, that's the stereotype. But I think a lot of people feel that way. A lot of people that know better and know and value dissent, or at least say they do, they still regard activism in that way. It's like something other people do, but it's not what we do. Yeah, there was, it was really weird. There's that brief period, or I don't know if brief, but where people thought Clint Eastwood was a vegan, there was this rumor, which I think turned out not to be true, but people were always like, a tough guy who's a vegan? Like, that can't be. Well, I think it's really funny now seeing the, uh, all these like mixed martial arts guys coming out, coming out as being vegan or vegetarian. And I would like the discussion around that. Like, I think people are just so intrigued by that idea that like, wow, you know, you can actually live this way and still pummel someone inside of a cage. Like, I don't, like, like, I don't, I don't know if that's what people like, is that good in some people's minds? Like, 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 oh, that's awesome. I want to beat people inside of a cage, too. I should also be vegan. Yeah, you don't think of, think of it that way. I mean, it's like... But I'm assuming those guys are more vegan for the health benefits and not the uh, think, hurting the animals. I th- yeah, I've seen... I think, of course, I never... Remember their name, but as I see articles about these guys, I've seen a couple that have spoken out about, um, you know, animal issues and environmental issues. But I think a lot of it is health. What What, what was your sort of? How long have you been a vegan? Um, since nineteen ninety eight. What was the sort of? Was that like a slow process, like of you coming aware, or was it like a one immediate thing? It was, it was pretty immediate. I mean, it was, I mean, I went vegetarian pretty much because of a girl. <laughs> like, I, uh, I've done that. A friend of mine. Yeah. I mean, I had, of course, had a crush on her, but also I, I had a lot of respect for her. We worked on a, a DJ um, radio station together. And I was engaged in all this, like, different political activism. And one day she just totally called me out and said, in a nice way, but was like, you know, you're doing all this political stuff. It doesn't make sense why you're not vegetarian like it doesn't stop you from doing those other things it's just another way of trying to help and you know make things better and she gave me diet for a new america by john robbins and i read it and i went i mean vegetarian as soon as i finished the i think even before i finished the book um and then the same thing happened with another friend of mine who really said the same thing he was like yeah it's great you're vegetarian but if you're vegetarian why aren't you vegan like you can do this, this, and this. Did you know about this? And gave me a book, and I went vegan. So the whole thing from you know, growing up meat eater in Texas to being vegan happened in like six months. That's. I would imagine the road is because you go travel around a lot. Does that get a little difficult? Because <laughs> it's like if you're in certain places, there's nothing around. Well, there's always plenty of things around to eat. They may not be my top choice. <laughs> like, you know, I like Taco Bell at all, but like, <laughs> you know, it's not the, the healthiest option out there. But I mean, I've, I've seen that change quite a bit in the last few years. I mean, every time I go home, you know, my parents live in a unincorporated Fort Worth and everywhere we go, there's something. Um, it might not be my first choice on the menu, but there's always something, uh, in the grocery stores, even kind of in the middle of nowhere, have all the fake meat stuff and vegan ice cream. It's really, it's really shocking. It's interesting. It seems like, I mean, the more people realize, or I mean, the corporations realize that there is a market for it. Like, it took forever for Whole Foods to get sort of on board with the GMO thing, and now they i think they're going to have everything labeled within the next 5 years because it's for them it's money right well and, and i think that's the issue across the board is that consumers are speaking out about these things i mean people actually want this information and 
you know, whether or not people go vegan, I don't think is really the issue. I think, you know, we're seeing a trend of people reducing meat and animal product consumption. And I think that's huge. And, and people want those options. They want, you know, healthier choices and non-GMO choices. And um, the more people speak up about that, I mean, that's the industry has to change and, and grocery stores have to change too. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, the rate of cancer seems to, I, I've known people in their 20s and 30s, like early 30s getting I have a I have a friend back in Chicago who just had like a huge part of his colon removed and he's like I'm going vegan. And it's he had um it wasn't cancer but it was uh I forget what the weird disease was but like he had pockets in his in his intestines. Wow. And it's but it's, I mean I, 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 the worst part is I think we all I mean, everybody has a friend or two or three like that. I mean, we all have these stories and it's, you know, I think so much of it is tied back to, to diet, but I think some of it is also just how, I mean, how our culture is operating from industrial farming, the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, we're talking about GMOs. I mean, everything is just kind of taking its toll, I think, on, on all of us and on the, on the planet, too. Yeah, it's it's. I just can't help but like I'm like in twenty, thirty, forty years. What is, what are are people just gonna look horrible? <laughs> it's like, because I feel like it's just with the environment and the food. If if we don't change these things radically, I just like we'll all look like sixty when we're twenty. Right. Well, and also, what will what will the planet look like too? I mean, that's what I mean. What terrifies me, I think, more than anything, is the thought of. You know, seeing these reports from radical groups like the United Nations talking about you know global environmental collapse in in our lifetimes of not being able to sustain um, or if not sustain have radical reductions in um, food and wars over water. I mean, this is kind of where things are heading right now, and I think if anything, you know, it's getting to that point where some pretty drastic decisions have to be made about how we're living our lives and, and how we're organizing ourselves uh, as a culture, I guess. Well, the good news is is that right around when we start really getting desperate for water is about the time I'm going to die. <laughs> so things, it'll be the first time in my life something panned out well. Like, it'll be timed perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm out. <laughs> it's all, all good. Thanks. I might actually just start eating really poorly, just so I don't even have to miss that. You know, I just I can totally bypass the total end. Well, you might as well just yeah, cut off. You know, just to be safe, cut off for ten to fifteen years. You know, <laughs> it'll be a lot of real just saturated fat from now on for me. I can't wait till that's actually the response from from some of these industry groups, you know, as they're being under pressure with these ag gag bills and everything else. Just feel like, you know, we're actually trying to help you all. We're, you know, the, the world is really going to shit. You know, why don't you just try to cut off a good 10, 15, even 20 years? Here, we've, we've got a sale. <laughs> I would love to see that marketing scheme. It's, But it's scary because I'm like, you know, like every, you know, my girlfriend and I talk about like the possibility of having children, and that seems like a pretty all right concept sometimes. But I'm like, I don't want to subject my kids to. I know that's probably an age old argument of like everyone always thinks the world's ending, but it is kind of <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. But it is. I mean, it's like. I no. I mean, I've had the same discussions, and then. Afterwards, I always get kind of a mix of angry and hopeless because I'm like, how dare this, this they, whatever they is, I guess corporations and people in power or whoever, how the, how dare they get to, get us to the point where, like, the most natural thing for any animal to do is something that we have to think about being a really bad idea. I mean, it just really makes me angry. Like, the thought of bringing someone else into this world being just a horrible thing. Um, 
it's just infuriating that, that anyone should have to think of things in this way. Yeah, it's, uh, boy, we're going to really depress a lot of people when this airs. <laughs> I think uh, when you air this, can you just like auto-tune it with uh, like an Eeyore voice? <laughs> Is there an Eeyore auto-tuned? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good idea. Um, well, I guess that kind of brings us to the the end there, Mr. Will, thank you very much for uh, joining me. <laughs> we'll just end up on that. Um, well, you know, it, it, and I don't mean to be, you know, flippant in this, but I, I don't think it's, it's that dire. I mean, I hate to leave people on all those notes because, you know, in the face of all that stuff, like, at least personally speaking, the reason I keep doing what I do is you just get reinvigorated for every 10 horrible things you're exposed to on a daily basis. All it takes is that one to kind of lift you back up and remind you that there are good people out there fighting and, you know, doing incredible work. And, you know, at the end of the day, that's all that really matters. I mean, it's not, you know, we don't, you don't fight the good fight based on whether or not you're going to win. I mean, you fight it because that's what you have to do. Um, so I think there's a lot of reasons to be inspired and not have the, you know, the Eeyore auto tune. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I, I, started doing this show and it I never had the intention to make it this social and political and it, I, there was a, a few guests you being one that just sort of uh and Dan Kavalik and Wayne Kramer and uh, the the Black Panther uh Pete O'Neill who were doing so right, right. doing so much I was like fuck I not I got to I have to do more like it's like I just complain about my stupid career and other random stuff it's like you can't that's it's that shit's not important. You have to try to make some sort of uh, awareness. You can't just be a selfish dick. <laughs> and, and no, I mean that's and, and that's how I feel doing this stuff too. I mean, uh, you know, it's like yeah, we're talking about horrible things, but then when I get off the phone, it's like, well, you know, Matt's out there plugging away. <laughs> I know other people out there plugging away, and it's like you just. You kind of have to feed off of that because we really don't have a whole lot else to draw from. <laughs> like you just have to draw from your friends and from people that are doing good work. I mean, that's all we can do right now. Yeah, and thank God for. I mean, your your site, greenistthenewred dot com. If I can throw that out, but that's uh... oh, another nice plug. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's like there's not a lot of places to get the right information i was watching cnn the other day mostly because anthony bourdain was on and but then the next news piece was like all about some trollop who murdered some guy like 10 years ago and i'm like you're fucking dedicating an hour of cnn of news quote unquote to some fucking drunk whore who kills some guy like i'm like what why did i have to call her a whore that was out of line but but I'm like, what are what is going on in this world that that's out of all the things that are going on at this time in history, you're focusing on some college girl who got drunk and killed a dude. Really? Like that's important to the, like, and that yeah, sets, yeah, yeah. sets such a tone. But it's everywhere. Yeah, I mean, it's everywhere doing that. Like, like Huffington Post. Huffington Post has like hot celebrity photos. And, you know, that's great sometimes, I guess, like, if you want to, <laughs> but, you know, or, you know, the cute cat photos, like, I, I like those. I'll post those on my Facebook and Twitter and all that. That's fun, but, like, that's not, that's like, our culture can't be driven by that, and I think it just dominates everything now. Yeah, it's really, the Huffington Post really amazes me because, like you read, you'll be reading an article about something very serious, and then over to the right, there's like six different, like you know, Jessica Simpson put on five pounds. Here she is in a bikini, and you're you're. It's kind of it's very distracting because it's like, yeah, that's really stupid, and but it sure is a you know, like you can't stop looking at that shit. It's infuriating. Well, it, especially the the juxtaposition, like. Do you want to look at that? It's almost like taunting you. Do you know? Do you do you really want to keep trying to pay attention to what you're reading, or do you want to like, you know, just check out? And, and you know, it's hard not to sometimes. Yeah, I feel like the Huffington Post didn't used to do that. Maybe I'm insane. 
I don't think they did either. I, I think it, you know, was a, a pretty big shift in, I guess, their business operation. They're just trying to get more money and more clicks. Yeah. All goes back to that, doesn't it? More money. More money. I want... Maybe I should just, once in a while, I'll do a show about some, like, boobs, and you can write a, you know, you can do, like, uh, hot, topless <laughs> vegan uh, p posts. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think you're on to something. I, I think this is the, really the only way to uh, financial stability here. I mean, we have to work this in somehow. I mean, think of, like, if a bunch of, activists who were really hot went and like set up a blaze like a like a logging factory or whatever but they were topless and you had those pictures people would start seeing the message <laughs> <laughs> and they probably would not be labeled as terrorists either i think that would <laughs> we we have to we can't we we need to use what they do to distract us to help get the message out there. I think we've really solved a big issue today. <laughs> I think I think the revolution just started with this conversation is what I think. <laughs> we need to really dumb down our efforts. That's what our problem is. <laughs> that's, I was about to say, that's the real takeaway. We really need to dumb it down. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we uh, talked. We really, we're going to change the world now with boobs and... All right, good work. Now let's go. Uh, I'll go, go. Hang on, I'm huffing to post and chill out a little bit. We did a lot of work today. We did, we did. Um, <laughs> what would you like to plug, Will? Your uh, your Twitter, your website, and your book, which is a phenomenal book, Green is the New Red, which it seems like that thing is everywhere. I see that. Am, am I wrong? I mean, I see those pictures. You I, I don't know. Oh, do you? That's great. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm out there doing media interviews and stuff. It's always kind of hard to gauge, you know, who's seen it and you know whether or not people are reading it but it, the book's been doing really well um yeah, yeah. If, if folks listening to this want to find out more about the stuff we're talking about um i hope you'll check out the book it's on ipad and all that kind of stuff or my website i've been running for for years now has a lot of information for free it's uh com. and soon with bi bikini pictures yeah <laughs> thank you very much Will. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening to my anniversary one-year show. Again, I want to thank you all very much for listening. If you would like to donate, you can go through my link there on the page and uh, donate some money if you can't. I know times are hard, but sometimes you need to buy some bullshit. You could buy, go through my Amazon link, buy some shit, I get some dough. Hip, hip, hooray. We both win. You get a movie or a CD, or a book, I get a penny, or a dime, I don't know how it works, I just know someday they send me money, and I blow it on booze, follow me on Twitter, Matt underscore DeWire, at the old Twitter there, and thank you again very much for listening to my show, Power to the People.
because it's so cold Are you fucking here. serious? Don't you're fucking you fucking know? Oh, and look at me so now. Now you think so. I think it's so rude. 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 branch of the United States government, it is the mission of the National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. The NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.